If you were to visit a local bookstore one evening after a dinner date with a loved one and ended up curiously browsing through the science section as you sipped on a foamy latte, you would find next to nothing about God in any of them, except a few dismissive chapters or comments about how foolish it is to believe in his existence in light of the findings of modern science. Biology, physics, chemistry, geology, or cosmology. Most books about the physical world omit Christianity or Genesis, God, the Bible, religion, Christ, Jesus, and design. If they are found in the book, often the references are in a historical context or God is mentioned in passing, only to be dismissed in a few pages. This assumed materialistic interpretation of the heavens and the earth is routinely disseminated to the public through the media, blogs, podcasts, radio and TV programs, public debates, and books by the leading popularizers of science, such as Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the late Carl Sagan, Sean Carroll, and the late Stephen Hawking, all of whom are incredibly influential in shaping the public consciousness regarding its understanding of the universe. If one wants to know what the physical world is all about, only a strict naturalistic interpretation of the physical world is usually all that's available. Whatever happened to God's chosen one, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, in regards to the heavens? Thankfully, the tide seems to be shifting for the better. Increasingly, there has been a wealth of publications which put forth a very nuanced and thoughtful biblical view of the physical world. From authors such as William Lane Craig, Alistair McGrath, Stephen C. Meyer, Melissa Kane Travis, Francis Collins, Hugh Ross, and physicist-turned-Anglican priest Sir John Polkinghorne, just to name a few. There is also a brand new and much-needed voice in the scientific conversation that is among the shelves now, Dr. Cy Gart, a former communist, militant atheist, and biochemist, has written a new book called The Works of His Hands, with an introduction written by Alistair McGrath. In his new book, Gart documents his personal journey from atheism through the intricate wonders of biochemistry and how he came to know and worship the risen Christ. His book not only speaks of some of the fantastic wonders of chemical structures, but also of how the Lord of the heavens and the earth gently brought an inquisitive young atheist from Boston into the kingdom of the heavens. Sai shows quite plainly his experiences were far more than a failing. They were miraculous. As Gart says, quote, God works through the natural world, and the natural world is the miracle. On this episode of Good Heavens, come and explore how science and faith, the heavens and the earth, chemistry and curiosity all point to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Well, hello, Cy Gart, my Twitter friend. It is so nice to have you on Good Heavens today. Thank you for joining me all the way from, you're in uh, Boston, is that correct? No, no, Maryland. You're Maryland, that's correct. You're on the Near East Coast. Washington, right. Yeah, so, uh, so thank you for joining us. We've had one chat on SJ's channel, and uh, we've tweeted back That's and right. forth. Um, That's right. You sent me a book, your book. I sent you my book. Mm-hmm. Um, did I send you a book? I did. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I want to say thank you because in the back of your book, I think your book is the first book since our book has been out. Uh, your book is the first book to have our book in a bibliography. That's right. That is so cool. I was like, no way. <laughs> Page 232. Well, I, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved your book, as I've told you. And, uh, you know, I wanted to put down all the books that had an influence on me. And that was one of them. So uh, that's excellent. So thank you very much. Uh, 
I didn't tell you up front, we're going to just talk about my book and how much you loved it. So uh, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I had you on. We can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's in all seriousness, it's the first book that I'm aware of that has uh, ours in the, in the appendix for further reading. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, let's get into your book. Um, but a little bit before we do, just uh, tell our friends uh, who Cy Gart is and, and your, your, your background and uh, your, how you came to Jesus and your love of science and how you got into science and all that. You do explain this in the book, but just a, a little breakdown for our, our podcast friends. What, what's going on with Cy? Sure. Um, so very long story shortened uh, quite a bit <laughs> is um, I grew up in an atheist household, a very militant atheist household. Uh, mm -hmm. My father was a chemist and uh, a great believer in materialism. And so I grew up that way. Uh, I was a strong atheist of the type that is now called new atheist, although it didn't exist then yet mm. much. Mm -hmm. But I clearly believe that not only did I not believe in the existence of a God, I believed that no God was possible and that religion was evil. Mm. So um, that's how I remained. Uh, I, I went to graduate school and I uh, uh, made so bold as to deviate a bit from the path my father sent. And instead of becoming a chemist, I became a biochemist. So that was oh. uh, a big act of rebellion on my part. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but I all, I've always loved biology and the study of life. And, uh, and with my chemical background, I decided biochemistry is the thing to do. So I mm. became a biochemist and, um, okay. So briefly, just, just for our mm -hmm. non-specialist, my non-specialist brain, um, difference between a biologist and a biochemist, very briefly. What is that? Well, a biologist is someone who studies life in general, and there are many branches of biology. Biochemistry is a little more specialized. It really, uh, it really concentrates on the chemicals that are part of life. So, for example, I know nothing about trees. I can't tell you one tree from another. I don't know anything about I don't know very much about animal behavior. You know, those are different branches of biology. What I do know about is proteins, DNA, okay. lipids, all the molecules that make up life that okay. work in life. So okay. it's so some people think of it as a branch of chemistry, others think of it as a branch of biology, uh, whatever. It's, okay. it's the mixture of the two. And how do you uh, how do you interact with them? So if you're on a college campus, or mm -hmm. how does the discipline of bio? How do biologists and biochemists get along? Is there compatibility and camaraderie, or do they hate each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I wouldn't say they hate each other. Biochemists <laughs> tend to be aware of the fact that biochemistry is the most, you know, the queen of the sciences. But, uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but certain other people disagree and you know sure. but that's that's okay. That's normal in any in any kind of and then you academic. must overlap with physicists to some degree. To some degree. Um I actually I was a chemistry major in college, so I learned a little bit about quantum theory because it's important in chemistry. Mm -hmm. Um I'm not a physicist and a lot of physics goes way over my head. Yeah. In fact, almost all of it. <laughs> uh, but I do know the basics of 
a little bit about everything, you know. Like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So you're you're uh, you're comfortable on the periodic table, hopping from square to square. Oh yeah, I, chemistry is what I started with. So yeah, and that's just chemistry. So Good. okay. Um, well, thank you fine. for that uh, that uh, brief excursus there, because uh, sure. sometimes we think uh, we see these terms and we're like, oh, that's all the same. It's, it's just, just science, right? Science, right? Yeah, it's all the same, right? It's all science, right? <laughs> uh, it just goes together. Um, okay, so uh, you rebelled, became a biochemist, but you grew up in an, <laughs> uh, a, a, a secular, very militant atheist household. Right. Uh, your grandparents were from the Soviet Union and then they migrated here. Is that uh, no, they, no, they came earlier than that. They, they came from Tsarist Russia. Oh. At the okay. turn of the... I guess around 1905, roughly. Yeah, the that, early migration. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And then they settled in. Uh, they settled. They settled in, in Boston. In Boston. Okay. And um, so from there, you you had uh, did your your parents encourage science? They demanded that you become a scientist, or this was your own choice? Well, they didn't demand it, but uh, growing up uh, with my father, who was a chemist, uh, it kind of. I naturally kind of gravitated towards it. I, I love the idea of science. I love, I love chemistry especially. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, it's hard to say there was no demand, but it kind of was understood that that would probably be what I would end up doing. And I, I always loved it. I still do. I mean, that's I, great. So you have I the, feel, you, your, your childhood fascination is carried over into adulthood. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I still do it. In fact, I, I've retired. I don't have a lab, but I now do theoretical uh, work. In you should, uh, you should get a lab. They're very friendly dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and you could say you still have a lab. <laughs> yeah. I'm retired, right. but I have a lab. Uh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> His name is Charlie or whatever. I have a, I have a picture on my, in my office of myself. I, I think I was about four. And uh, I have a giant dictionary on the dining room table and I'm flipping through it and it's just, I have this big smile on my face. So I, uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a writer who likes science. I, uh, I've had a childhood fascination with the universe all my life. Right. Um, and it was really launched by uh, Sagan in the, in the eighties when I was uh, a tot and um, right. loved, loved cosmos. Didn't know what the materialism was all about, but right. uh, was just very moved by the way Sagan oh, yeah. could communicate yeah. uh, the heavens and the earth. So, you also, not only are you a, a biochemist, but you're a, a pretty good writer. This book is not ghostwritten. These are your words, uh, which is really cool. And it's a very wonderful, warm uh, invitation to come and, and see what your life is all about. So you're, you, you know, I think that's a gift too, because a lot of, a lot of science books you read, sometimes they're just, you're like, okay, you need a, you need some uh, grammatical assistance here. <laughs> Make this story more compelling, right? But it's not, right. your, your book is very, um, it, it's not dry, even though you go into the sciences, you communicate it very well with stories and Thank everything. You. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I threw some, I don't know. I threw some fables in, which yeah. were a little, I was a little nervous about that because some of them could sound a, little, a bit irreverent, which is not well, my intention. Well, I, I but, you know, it's funny. I, I had the same problem with, with our book and communicating uh -huh. what the stars were like. I said, you know, there's going to be some people that think we're just, we're, we're dabbling in astrology or we're, you know, there, there's, we don't, don't say the word Zodiac, you know, don't talk about the right. constellations because that's witchcraft. And I'm like, wait a minute, but Harvest House, you know, Terry, our editor, he's like, Dan, don't worry about it. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we all know where we're coming from and, and Jesus is Lord. And that's the whole point of it. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had, I had the same experience at Kriegel. My editor uh, was very reassuring. I, I offered to take them all out and he said, no, that's fine. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. So, well, I mean, I just watched it. They know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen the conversation between Roger Penrose and William Lane Craig on. on I Reddit. sure did. <laughs> yeah, That's well, great. Yeah. Justin Justin Briarly reached out to me yeah. and asked me to do uh, a review essay for his blog on that. Wonderful. Wonderful. I was really, I was, I was humbled. I was like, really? Thank yes. you. Yes. Well, uh, no, that that makes sense. I mean, it was it was is... uh, it was fun to do. But one of the things I I learned in listening to Roger was was just how much you know you talk about the parables you put in your book, but just how much. Roger was appealing to fiction, um, metaphysics, and uh -huh. imagination when he was trying to counter Bill Craig. Absolutely. He, he Absolutely. really was not appealing to hard science. That's right. Uh, and that, to That's me, right. was the most remarkable thing. And I'm like, does this brilliant cosmologist, theoretical physicist, is he answering all of the bigger questions with these explanations that he's offering? And I just felt like it just kind of fell flat. You know, in, well, that's a that's a great segue to the next part of my story, which that's is why that, I thought it would be. Yes, <laughs> yes, it, it certainly was, is because I came to the same conclusion while I was studying, especially you know physics, but also later biology and biochemistry. I came to the conclusion that, wait a minute, uh, my faith in materialism is getting shaken here. Yeah, <laughs> you know the observer effect and and, and quantum entanglement and you know, all the, the, the double slit experiment, all these things just, they have explanations and they're real and they're certainly true, but they certainly don't go along with the kind of materialism that I understood was complete truth. Right. You still, you find yourself and if you, you read the contemporary cosmology, you read contemporary mm -hmm. theoretical physics. And I mean, even Murray Gell-Mann, you know, made up the name Quark. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean that we really know what a cork is, but, but the, it's a continual appeal to metaphysics and the imagination That's right. That's in trying right. to explain, especially the quantum realities, the subatomic reality of, of the universe, uh, right. the origins of the universe, the structures of the universe that maybe preexisted ours require a great deal of uh, imagination. I think the, the cosmologist J. Richard Gott, who worked with Neil deGrasse Tyson, he even said himself, his model, when you sketch it out, looks like something from a Dr. Seuss book. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. not to say that these models are you know wrong or or just flights of fancy, but but it does show the tremendous amount of imagination that you need. And there's nothing wrong with imagination; it just shows that you need imagination and creativity when you're thinking about things that are not materially observable or justifiable. Right, and the lesson that I got from that, which was a shock to me, but it was undeniable, is that the real world, which of course I was always defending. Uh, as an atheist against this silly superstition of, of belief, that that real world actually <laughs> is pretty mysterious and mm. is very metaphysical at, at yeah. its heart. And that was that was a, a a huge blow to my to the faith that I was brought up with, the faith in in you know material materialism, rash, uh, naturalism, philosophical naturalism, mm -hmm. all of that all of those philosophies just crashed. And so that left me wondering, so what does that mean? And I didn't have an answer. I, I didn't believe in God. I was not a, I didn't suddenly become a theist, but it, it opened up my brain or my soul uh, to 
other things. And I started looking around and seeing what else there could be that could explain this strange nature of reality. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I'm a bit older than you. I grew up in the sixties, or at least I came to maturity in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And, um, at that time, you know, a lot of the new age stuff was becoming very popular and I, I did transcendental meditation. I did a lot of these things. But yeah. It's sort of on a searching quest and everything was kind of interesting, but nothing really grabbed me. And, um, uh, I don't know if it ever would have, but at, at some point I, I, I met, uh, a couple of people who were religious one was a Christian and uh, a Catholic, and I went with her to church. And that was, a, uh, I had never walked into a church before, and here I am in my mid-40s. Mm-hmm. And I had never actually been in a church, even for concerts. I used to refuse to go into churches. Uh, and, and, and this time I went in for a service, and I was absolutely terrified. But I was also astounded at what I found because instead of all the myths that I had heard about the horrible Catholic church and how it's all fire and brimstone and you're going to hell and you're a sinner. And all I heard was love. I mean, the priest mm. talked about love, the, the congregation, you know, passed the peace to each other and mm. people were warm and welcoming and friendly a standard church, you know, mm-hmm. same in all the churches I've been to. But that was all new to me, uh, so I began uh-huh. realizing, wait a minute, I think I've been lied to a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just reality that, that I've been lied to about, it's also, you know, what is this Christianity thing? So Right, then you, have I that decided, on, uh, you have that on page uh, 128, 129 in your book where you start talking about church, that what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that was a really, I had just read that this morning, that was a really uh, wonderful image of of you know, having the scales fall off of your eyes for the first time. Yeah, it was, it was a revelation in a way. I I mean, I, that still didn't make me a believer because I still, well, that's nice. People are nice. Right. Good. Okay, fine. Uh, And, um, but all of this opened up everything to me and I was able to read the gospels for the first time without sneering or just, you know, in an open-minded way. And, that was another revelation because as I read the Gospels and especially the Book of Acts, uh, it dawned on me that this doesn't sound like it's made up. This sounds like actual history from the, the tone, from the events, from the descriptions of the people. You know, Peter is shown as a weakling who, you know, mm-hmm. basically cowers in fear. And, and this is the hero. I mean, who writes that way, right? And right. of course, the whole Bible has that. And when I yeah. later went back and read other parts of the Bible, you know, it, it had the ring. And also, it has the ring of truth. Yeah, right. I mean, who, I mean the, who would make up a character like David on purpose? I know. know? <laughs> yeah, these are the these are the patriarchs, the foundational patriarchs. Exactly. Patriarchs exactly. of faith, and they're like, they're idiots. They're, they're not very nice people, <laughs> let's put it that way. So, no. so that, that was another eye opener and uh or soul opener or whatever but (laughs) still it required direct experience with jesus uh and and this is well documented in the book and you've already read that uh where i discuss a couple of very powerful dreams that Mm. that i had uh, out of nowhere i thought out of nowhere Mm -hmm. uh and and then finally after 
you know, sitting on that agnostic fence and wishing that I could, you know, actually get myself to believe uh, the Holy Spirit came to me while I was driving one day uh, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And, and that story is described in great detail in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and when the Holy Spirit had finished shaking me up a little bit, I was a Christian. Yeah, I knew I believed. And so you know, that, it's, that's the story. That's a uh, very unscientific of you, Cy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would I would dispute that because I think what we now what we are what we tend to call scientific uh, may need some revision. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, you go back to 17th century. You go back to people like Robert Boyle, who there you go. was himself right. a chemist, as you know. Right. Uh, I think he's attributed to be the patriarch of modern chemistry. Yes, he is. Um, along that, there was the Russian fellow who laid out the periodic table. I forgot his name. Mendeleev. Uh, Mendeleev. Uh, but between them, um, you know, you have these thinking people that are arranging these things. But but Boyle and his contemporaries thought it was kind of strange that you would be called a scientist because really that means knowledgeist, right? Right. But, Right. It was more natural philosophy because Boyle, That's was, right. he was philanthropic with his, he was wealthy philanthropic. He founded the Royal Society uh, and pioneered the scientific method that we, that we use today. I find it utterly ironic when I see skeptics and atheists say, you know, you don't know science or the scientific method. I'm like, well, you, do, you don't know who Robert Boyle is and you don't know <laughs> <laughs> the very well, thing. Well, it wasn't only Boyle. I mean, yeah. Boyle is only one of the, right. He's just one example. All the major science, uh, the major scientists of the right. right. this right. century were but Christian, you, devout you, Christian. You see the development of the history of science and the idea that what we are familiar with as science is really just one branch of knowledge about the physical world. It's That's not, right. I think exactly. you say, you say it in your book that you describe very well how there are limits to science because it's only one way of knowing. That's and right. uh, you referenced very briefly uh, Godel. Um, mm -hmm. And, you, you know, and, and basically in a nutshell, I'm not too familiar with the density of his writing, but basically yeah. <laughs> explanatory, <Hard> right, <laughs> explanatory systems can't explain themselves. So that's right. That's, that's exactly the basic right. gist of well, it. You, well said. Yeah, yeah. The, the math is very useful, phenomenally useful. Right. But math can't explain math. That's and, right. And that's what I, you outlined that very well. Um, oh, thank you. The, the limits of science. Um, yeah. The, the well, science, and, and can't ex science can't explain science, in other words. That's what you're getting exactly. at, Exactly. Right? And, and, and yeah, the limits of science are, are is a subject that's of great, interest these days because there are uh, people who um, who claim that there are no limits to science, that all questions, I, I'll tell you a, a, a quick story that's true, yeah. that's not in the book. Uh, I was having a Twitter debate, you know how those go. I do. <laughs> with, <laughs> with an atheist who is claiming that science can answer all questions, that everything can eventually be reduced to a scientific answer. And I said, well, I said, well, how about this one? How, how would you scientifically determine the quality of a work of art? Because uh, you said nothing is subjective. And I said, isn't that an example of a subjective thing? He said, no, 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 that's not true. Uh, you can do it scientifically. You just uh, take two pieces of art, two works of art, and see which one has a higher price. That's the better piece. 
You're kidding. That was no, and, and everybody gives me the same answer. They say, you're kidding. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. That actually did happen. Wow. <laughs> wow. So there are people who, now that's rare, I admit it. Right. Uh, and thinking atheists won't do that. But there are plenty of people who have taken this idea that of scientism, which is mm -hmm. a word that the atheists also hate. But, right. Uh, I don't know if you know Ian Hutchinson. He's a, he's a uh, physicist from uh, MIT, mm -hmm. wrote a book about scientism. And uh, it's fascinating because it's actually a very anti-scientific philosophy. And yes. very few scientists believe it. I mean, even my father, who was as atheistic as anyone could possibly be, used to tell me that there are many questions science cannot answer. And right. And and as I point out, everyone knows that. Everybody knows that. I mean, even That's in right. my Twitter debates, I've I get the I get the same sort of responses. You know, science and very the, the various forms of scientism that that say that evidence for God must be testable, verifiable, <laughs> repeatable, objective. objective. Right. And repeatable. I I just I just say, well, if I if I have a if I'm teaching a chemistry class and students don't know the first thing about molecular structures. And I say to them, you know, uh, on this chart, identify the molecular structure of carbon-14. And, and I don't tell them what it looks like. And I just say, well, the structure will be testable, repeatable, verifiable, and objective. That's not going to give them any <laughs> <That's> <laughs> about, <right. laughs> about what Good that's point. going to look like, you know. Um, but, but the idea, you know, they throw out Karl Popper. They throw out logical positivism. But they don't know the foundational theories of knowledge that have failed in the last century or so about, right. you know, hard verificationism or the failure of empiricism as an epistemology um, in terms of it's uh, unable, you know, the, the philosophers of the last century couldn't figure out how much empirical evidence you need to justify a truth claim. Yeah. Um, and and, and yeah. so there's a lot of ignorance in terms of the past philosophical attempts at making science the queen of all epistemologies. And I think you outlined in your book, there are, uh, there are absolutely other ways of knowing. And, uh, That's right. That's uh, and right. science isn't the only one. And a lot of times, and you probably get this too, well, give me, a, give me a tool by which I can identify how God exists. And, and there's no other tool other than empiricism that can show and identify and give us the evidence that we're looking for. And then I just list you know, 20 or 30 non-empirical things we take for granted through which we can know, you know. Right. And, and so, well, yeah. I, I, the, the truth is, and, and again, this is something that so, most scientists know, if not all, is that whatever your, your worldview is, whatever your epistemology is, it's always based on some fundamental axioms, and that includes science as well, of course, right. because there are many fundamental axioms in science which are required to go forward. And uh, all you need to do uh, is just say, well, I'm going to add, or what I did was I'm going to add another axiom, which is that God exists. Mm. And uh, now, do I need to, do I have the burden of proof that God exists? Yes, I do. But the question is, to whom do I owe this burden of proof? That's a great point, Cy. Because... And the answer is to myself. Yeah, I mean, you have, it's the first okay, Peter so 3. Okay, so I had, I had to have, sorry, I didn't get that. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it's just, it's exactly what, you know, give a defense. You know, you have that. Right. You'll call it a burden. It's Peter's exhortation to us to, to give a defense. and that's, Exactly, exactly. But, so, but as you, you point out, just real quick, you point out that 
you bring up something when when a when a skeptic asks you know reminds us that we have the burden of proof true um but it, as you just say who's going to be the arbiter who's going to determine right. that that burden has been fulfilled that's right and i don't need i don't need to nor can i i believe convince a committed atheist to believe in god through evidential arguments right right god can do that that's what happened with me and yes. right. <laughs> and so when when the holy spirit grabbed hold of me uh and and worked the magic of god or whatever you want to call it the 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 the, the spiritual transformation that god can do to people mm. that was sufficient evidence for me i didn't need anything else other than that so uh and that's true for everyone else i mean no, yeah. The most we can do, I believe, as apologists, is open, do what happened with me. In other words, to, to, to let people uh, be open, allow people to open up to the reality of God's existence and, the, and God's presence in their life. Yeah. Once they're open to that, uh, he will appear. And what I realized when I became a Christian and I began thinking about my past life, I realized that God had spoken to me many times. Had yeah, you outlined, many times. you yeah. outlined it very beautifully in the steps that, uh, right. and, and, and I think you, right. what you show, it's not a Damascus road so much as it is a gradual stepping stone toward the right. truth. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, talk about your little, talk about your experience with, with Matthew. That was really, because one of the things that reminded me of was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a person who understands Russian culture, but there are certain hymns that I hear sung by Orthodox choruses that are Russian that they're so somber, but they're so moving. And there's right. something so powerful about that. I read uh, Dostoevsky uh, just a couple of years ago for the first time, uh, Crime and Punishment. And um, uh, that got me interested in Russian culture a little bit. And uh, I found this song, maybe you've heard it. It's called uh, Kalinka, I think. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, and so that that tenor, it's kind of a song. It's a love song, but in the middle of the song, there's an explosion of this tenor's voice. Mm, yeah. Just, well, Russian music is very, very emotional. <laughs> it, it is. Si. It is so my, powerful. Uh, it really is. My, but talk about yeah. that. Talk about your Matthew experience and and all of that. Well, uh, okay. So the Matthew experience um, was interesting because that I think was actually the first call that I remember from the spirit to me. Mm. Uh, and what happened was that uh, I, I had a girlfriend, I was, I was a teenager, I think I was about 16 or 17. I had a girlfriend who was secretly a Christian. I didn't know she was a Christian. Ah. Uh, and uh, I don't think anyone did because, you know, uh, this was in New York City and almost everybody was either atheist or well, mostly atheist. I guess. And uh, so anyway, she brought me to a movie uh, that had just come out by an Italian director named Pasolini. It's, it's, it's a classic film. It's called The Gospel According to Matthew. Mm. And it's a film that portrays the gospel according to Matthew, and the words are all the text of the gospel. There's nothing added. Mm. And I was sitting there watching it, kind of getting bored and thinking, oh, all right, you know, this is all this religious stuff. Why are we even here? And, and then the last scene is Jesus has been buried in the tomb and uh, the whole long sequence from his death on the cross 
the women come, bring him down from the cross, bring him to the tomb. Oh, this is very long. And it's accompanied by this, as you said, a, a very emotionally somber Russian hymn, which just, it just feels really sad. And I think it beautifully conveys how the apostles must have felt at that moment there that, you know, the, the person like Peter, the person they thought was going to be, the, was the Messiah, has died. He's not supposed to die. This is terrible. Everything is over. It's, it's you know, the dread of, of Holy Saturday. You know, what, mm. what do we do now? And he's placed in the tomb. And then this continues. And it's the next day or, you know, it's the third day. And uh, Mary and the other women come to the come to the tomb and they look up and the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. And at the same time that happens, the music does a sudden shift from this very somber funeral mass, I guess, Russian uh, hymn, to a joyous uh, hymn called Misaluba, which is an African melody. Mm. And it's just incredibly joyous. Now, I, I am a musician by, in origin. I went to music in our high school. Uh, I love music. Music is very emotional for me. And when I, at that age, when I heard that, when I saw that and heard that, for, for a moment there, I, I was transformed. Uh, it, was, it was Road to Damascus. I mm. literally felt oh, this is real, this is true, this is beautiful, this is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and that lasted for about a couple of hours, maybe. <laughs> As yeah. we were leaving the theater, my girlfriend asked me, what did you think of that? And I said, well, it was very nice. And then I said, but you know, that trick with the music, that that was really, that's terrible. I mean, just playing with my emotions. Right. I, that's not real. You know, it was just... you. Yeah, the same argument you you've heard many times when people say, "Oh, well, that's all in your brain. That's just neurochemistry, sure, emotional sure. things." Right. Uh, it's certainly not real. So I, that was it. I mean, I had that flash. I put it away. I ignored it. I forgot it. Well, I didn't forget about it, but I ignored it. And uh, it wasn't until what forty years later <laughs> or so. <laughs> that I remembered and I realized, yeah, he's been calling me for a long time. Yeah. And uh, there were other experiences around the same time that were very similar. Yeah. My, uh, I had a similar, but less dramatic seed planting in my own Christian life. Um, mm. It was actually, I remember very clearly uh, growing up in the seventies, I lived in what is now Silicon Valley. I lived in Palo Alto, California. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved peanuts. I loved uh, Snoopy and, and Charlie Brown and oh yeah, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite things to do was when Christmas rolled around was watching uh, you know network television when you had to get up and turn the dials on the TV and it's black and white TV, right? Watching uh, Charlie Brown Christmas uh, for the umpteenth time or whatever I don't, I don't know how old <laughs> I was seven eight years old maybe, um, and Linus's proclamation of Luke um, when he's talking about the shepherds in the fields and Charlie mm. Brown's struggling with what's the Christmas all mean. And Linus launches right. into a recitation of the annunciation of uh, the angels annunciation of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And I knew as a child, that was true. That mm. was the meaning of Christmas. Now mm -hmm. I didn't come to Christ. I didn't grow up as a Christian. Um, I didn't come to Christ till 20 years later. 
but I knew that that whatever Linus was saying that 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 Jesus was the reason for Christmas. I didn't know anything about Jesus, but absolutely whatever Linus was saying was was absolutely true. That was the truth about everything. Um, and I sort of like you um, had that sense of that's absolutely real. And then when I became a Christian, I looked back and I saw that very clear and distinct uh, message that God was was saying to yeah. me. So, so yeah. that, that seed planting, I think what we're talking about here is that, that it's a gradual process. And mm-hmm. a lot of times you hear it as, as much as I do that the atheist primary objection to, to God's non-existence is, well, if God exists, he could convince me that he does and he hasn't convinced me that I'm pretty sure he doesn't exist. Um, but of course, well, I, I, I would, my answer to that is, yeah, uh, but it's not entirely up to him. I think <laughs> we have a role in that as well. Absolutely. Sure, uh, sure. And we have to be open. We have to be willing to listen and we have to be willing to let go of all of the stuff that is preventing us from listening. Yeah, I loved your analogy of that dream you had about clinging to a cliff. Exactly. And you right. heard the voice, that... you're hanging by a hand and you're just like, you're like, I'm going to fall. And you hear right. a voice that says, let go. And all of a sudden, you're, you're right side up uh, hugging the rock. Right. <laughs> and and, and that, that's exactly what I was referring to when I said that, because when I had that dream, that was fairly early. And uh, I was just starting to think about you know, what else was there besides science? And uh, and I, I was mystified by it. It was an incredibly powerful dream. Uh, mm. It is in the book. Um, but you've given a good summary of it. And I didn't know what it meant. I mean, what what, what does that mean, let go? Let go of what? Mm. <laughs> and then I, <laughs> of course, now I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was an awful lot I had to let go of. And right. I think and that's true for many people. And you didn't realize, and this was kind of my response to to that same question that the atheist raised i'm not convinced um but you know you look back i look back and after becoming a christian you can see the points at which god was in a process of convincing me exactly and exactly. i didn't recognize it as, right. as such there are these right. little stones these little moments of 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 being god planting the seed planting the seed planting the seed and pretty soon it it it's just okay you know my conversion was very gradual. I had no dramatic mm-hmm. testimony. And when I became a believer as an adult, I struggled with the fact that I did not have a dramatic black to white. It was almost mm-hmm. so, so gradual. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I um, think that's very common. Yeah. Yeah. The, the moment it happened, but I do know at some point I came to know that Jesus is Lord and that his, the the Bible was his word. And I, I couldn't tell you exactly the moment that, that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate your testimonies because they're, they show a multifaceted approach to the way God was getting your attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I did have a, I guess the, the, the road to Damascus was sort of my road to Pittsburgh. I was on the <laughs> Pennsylvania turnpike. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't quite the same because that, you know, Paul's transformation was from one to the other mm. all at once and very dramatic. I didn't mm. have that. I don't know how many people do. I think a few, some people do, but sure. I did. it was, it was more like yours. And that was that final, uh, final incident was the, was basically the, the final incident that, yeah. the one that drove me. So that was over the threshold. <laughs> those were very personal stories and, and, right. and uh, appreciate how they, I do appreciate how they, you know, you, you've 
open yourself up to that because you throw yourself out like that. You know, I was not very personal in my own book. It was more of a focus on the universe, but you did a great job of showing both how personal experience and, uh, and science God used both in your life to, to lead you right. to, to Christ. Now, um, briefly though, let's talk a little bit about the, the science that started to work on you. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the Russian music and the film and your girlfriend, <laughs> You know, you had this, the, 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 the drive to, to Pittsburgh. Um, but there was, you, in your molecular biology, um, chemistry and DNA were beginning to impress you with yes. a sense of purpose, teleology, as you say, purpose. That's right. And, and uh, intricate uh, design. Uh, talk a little bit about, so if you would, um, I, I know we say DNA all the time and some people know what we're talking about, some people don't. So how about a how about a elementary breakdown of what DNA is and what impresses you about it the most? Well, DNA is a very very long chemical. It, it consists of repeating units. They're called bases. There are four of them, and we give them letters uh, A, C, G, and T. And it turns out that the sequence of those bases, whether it's A, A, C, G, T, T, A, G, G, whatever. Uh, is form what we call the genes, and and that molecule determines everything about any particular organism. In other words, how it's built, how it's shaped, how it functions, Mm. all the organs, everything the tissues do, uh, you name it. It's all eventually coming from this DNA sequence. Mm. And the way that works is very complicated and very complex, but absolutely beautiful. And it, it's something that when I first learned it, I, I, I got a chill up and down my spine. And when I began teaching it, I had the same kind of passion for teaching it because it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful story. I think, it sh- I think people should learn that as they study the Bible because it's, to me, it's, it's another praise to, to God's majesty. And it, to me, this is my layman's description of it, and tell me if it's mm-hmm. accurate or not, but if you take a necklace and you just take both ends and you twist the necklace to where it's wrapped around itself and it's both sides of the chain are touching each other, mm-hmm. really DNA is, is the sides that touch each other are actually instructions for how to build a protein. Is that correct? Yeah, um, kind of. This, I mean, it's the instructions for how to build a protein are the sequence, and the fact that it's there are two sequences that's extra tech technical stuff that's not really as critical. What's critical is because if you know if you know the sequence of one of those two strands, you know the other one. Okay, so like if it's an A, you know it's this. If it's a G, you know it's that. If it's an A, you know the other one's going to be a T. If it's a G, you know it's going to be a C. That's the rule. Got it. And that is rarely violated. So um, mm. when, so the key thing is the actual sequence of one of those strands, exactly right, is the instructions for how to build protein. Wow. And proteins are the things that make us what we are. Proteins are what give us what we call a phenotype. And the phenotype right. just means all of our characteristics. We're what we tall, look like. We're, yeah, my you know, green we're bald, eyes or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, smart, smart to some extent, cute. not always. Yeah, oh. cute, right, right, right. Anything and human. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. We have to have human DNA or we're not human. So, uh, right. 
And so all humans have very much the same DNA. There are some some small uh, variations. That you know, what strikes me, what's most impressive about DNA, no matter how complicated it can be, the, the, the most impressive thing for me when I try to read about it is that let's let's just take God off the table for just a second. Let's take mm -hmm. purpose off the table for just a second. And let's enter into the world of a purely naturalistic descriptions of mm -hmm. these coded uh, sequences. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me that if purely naturalistic explanations are true, uh, natural selection and evolution without any sort of divine guidance in the process, if natural selection is true, how ironic, even paradoxical it is, that, the, that evolution has left us with a language that we can only describe DNA as though it does have a purpose. I have never right. seen any description of DNA in any book or paper that I've ever read from a secular materialist to, to a Christian. You can't avoid using purpose-filled <laughs> language to describe it. Now, is that purpose-filled right. language just illusory? Because no. everybody says it's, it's like, well, that's the best way we, we can describe it. But it, it doesn't seem like you could describe it any other way that we're forced to talk about it as though, uh, you mentioned in your book, that it seems like the cells have brains and they know right. what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people right. will say that that, purpose, that purposeful language is just illusory. Is, is, how do you speak to that? Well, I actually wrote a paper about that, uh, which is published in uh, the pers uh, Perspectives in Science and Christian Faith, a uh, journal put out by the American Scientific Affiliation. And my paper is about teleology, in other words, mm. in biology, the, the purpose in biology. And no, I, it, it is not an illusion. In fact, DNA is the first symbolic language in the universe. It, mm. it is, uh, it's the first example of any chemical, and before there was life, all there was was chemicals, basically. It's the first example of any chemical that means something other than what it is. Mm. So, uh, and, and Stephen Meyer in his book, Signature in the Cell, uh, has a very good description of this. Um, the, the sequence ACCGTA means take the, this amino acid, I don't know the code by heart, but take sure. this amino acid and put it next in the protein and then take that amino acid and put it next in the protein. Mm. Now, that's, that's equivalent to saying that the word that we spell T-R-E-E -E means that tall wooden plant that's growing outside the mm. house mm -hmm. okay there's nothing about the word tree or albaro or any other word you want to use mm -hmm. uh for tree in any language there's nothing about any of those words that signify you know the the picture of a tree it's just a word that means it's 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 a sound and it's a set of letters that means something other than what it is it means a tree right and dna does that too because there is nothing about those sequences of bases in the DNA that signify by themselves that they should stand for an amino acid. It's just an informational language. Yeah, and it, it's somehow uh, was was invented, and we don't know how that could be possible.
And that's one of uh, and the, that's why I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. Uh, that's why when it when it comes to the origin of life, I am firmly in the intelligent design camp. I think that there's no way to explain to to my and this gets can get very technical, uh, but I would just summarize to say the origin of life to me is um, a clear indication of something other than a purely naturalistic. Uh, process that occurred from chemicals on surfaces. Yeah, and in a purely naturalistic worldview, I think uh, Stephen Meyer does bring this up. I think it's signature in the cell. Um, the, the whole conundrum for a materialist about information. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, you, I've seen you get accused of, on Twitter, just specifically of, of people who are, who are blasting you for the use of the word information, that you're just being anthropomorphic. Um, but but yeah. the language, the description of what's actually going on there, you can't say anything intelligible about it unless you call it information. Uh, now, there's there's an unfortunate, this is sort of a little technical issue, but there's an unfortunate, unfortunate problem with the word information. And that yeah, is unpack two that different if you would. meanings. Yeah, right? yeah, unpack that if you would. That's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. So information uh, has a meaning in physics that is very different from the meaning that we use when we talk about information, you know, in the sense of DNA or the sense of language or the sense of human knowledge. Okay. In physics, information is highly connected with entropy. And this is made famous by Shannon, who was an information scientist. So, uh, for example, a string of letters that is completely random has actually more information than a string of letters that are all the same. Now that that's physics, that's physical information. That's mm-hmm. not the kind of information we're talking about when we talk about, you know, human type of information. Really? And I wish, I wish there were two different words because it gets <laughs> terribly confused. And I've had people, I've had physicists tell me, no, no, you're wrong. Uh, you know, DNA is not the only information. There's information all over the universe. Yes, there's that kind of physical information. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about information, you know, that tells us something, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that explains mm-hmm. something. That that kind of human information is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about information in DNA, and that's, you know, that's also the same point made by Meyer. Right, and and the the other simple fact of the matter, no matter how complicated the molecular science might get, the very simple fact of the matter is that we can see this process, we can mm-hmm. describe it, we can observe it. This yeah. isn't specular. This isn't specular. Oh no! Theoretical. We're watching this unfold. Uh, you talk about Watson and Crick and their discovery. Um, the 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 fascinating machinery. There's no other word to describe it, really. Yes, it's of, it's absolutely machinery. It's incredible yeah. machinery. It's nothing like I think Bill Gates has has commented about. Uh, you know, computer code not coming anywhere close to what no. we find in uh, in the human cell. Now, the the fascinating thing for me is that DNA. You know, let's let's break down how small this is, Cy. Um, where where is DNA found, and just just how tiny are these, these strings of information? Well, that's a very interesting question. The the chemicals making up uh, a small section of DNA are, you know, they're molecules. They're they're small. But if you took a strand of DNA out of a cell, they they actually reside in the nucleus of every cell. Mm-hmm. But if you took one strand out, it would be, you could actually measure it. It would be several feet long. Wow. 
And one of the big mysteries in biology is how does such a long thread, <laughs> mm. I mean, you, you can't imagine, it would be a, a, you know, a thread that's invisible molecularly, but it has a, a measurable length. That's how does that fit into a cell? Uh, we don't know. That we it don't reminds know me very much of Psalm 139. Uh, I am fearfully and right. wonderfully made. You made, right. knit me, knit, I think is the word in the NASB, right. knit me yeah. together in my mother's womb. I'm fearful, fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, Correct. And it seems like the biological sciences and biological chemistry is affirming the ancient truth about the, what the Hebrews didn't know, but but they did know, and they almost knew better than we do. We, <laughs> you know, they didn't have the DNA, but they knew that they were fearfully and wonderfully made. We have the DNA, and we don't think we are constructed, which is remarkable. Well, you know, what's have what has become very interesting interesting to me, and I'm even thinking about this as a possible another book, is how much in the Bible there is in biology. Now, people often talk about, you know, Psalm, uh, what is it, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of, of God, etc. cetera. Um, and there's a lot of cosmology in the Bible, but there's also a lot of biology. Mm. And when people talk about evolution and say, well, it's not in the Bible, true, it's not. And uh, they say God created, uh, each each uh, animal according to its kind. That statement that God created each animal according to its kind. In other words, the the point that is often made by young Earth creationists like Kent Hovind that you know cows only give birth to cows and dogs only give birth to dogs. That's absolutely true, mm. and it's essential for mm -hmm. that to be true to have evolution. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> believe you need it or not. You need uh, you need the specific. Uh, specific you, you need to have you need to have it very specific that, and and this by the way is a remarkable fact of biology, um, and and it comes from the DNA. It's because we have DNA that gives the same instructions that are passed down. The DNA is copied, so that the same DNA, maybe with some slight variations, is passed down from one generation to the next. If that were not true, we couldn't have evolution, we couldn't have anything going on, it wouldn't be life as we know it. So the statement that God created each species or each animal according to its kind is a biological fact that was remarkable that it was so, I mean, obviously people noticed this, they looked mm. around and they saw that, you know, cows gave cows and, mm -hmm. and goats gave goats, but they understood that there were no exceptions to this. Yeah. And, and that is an incredibly important scientific fact. So I'm considering the idea of looking a little closer at the Bible and seeing how much else there is uh, in biology and, and maybe trying yeah, to put that together. That'd be really neat. I think uh, this is getting back to Godel, you have a significant uh, classification system in evolutionary biology. Now, whether some, some believe in natural selection or theistic evolution or whatever, the very reality of, I think, what is helpful about uh, uh, the current theories of biological life that are out there, whether you agree with them or not, is the, the ornate and very, uh, very detailed 
taxonomies and classifications of systems. Right. And, and what was the first thing that Adam did? Yeah, he starts naming and classifying. He was the first. He, that's right. He was yeah. the first uh, phylogeneticist. <laughs> right. So, so you have this, but but there's still embedded in the classification system of modern biology is Godel's theorem that the classification system can't explain why things are classifiable. That 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 you have exactly. you have the that's fingerprint right. of DNA. You can put right. them into the categories, but where did the spreadsheet come from to begin with? How did that's you get, right. get the boxes? Right. How can you put them here and put them here and put them here and put them here? Why is all of this uh, stuck together like this? How come we can do this? That that is a remarkable thing. It's I think it was Einstein in relation to the physics of the universe. Why is the universe intelligible? Why is that's right. biological that's right. life? Why, why does math work? Why does math all? work? Where where does where do numbers come from? Um, so the systems that modern science has put into place uh, take as axiomatic our ability to classify and to quantify, but the quantifications and the classifications can't explain where those come from. They're incomplete mm -hmm. in that in that exactly. capacity. Yeah. So I think. Yeah. So all of these all of these things dawned on me, and they all raised questions. Uh, well, wait a minute. What's going on here? I mean, you know, right. And and. Um, I once heard a, a lecture by the, the brilliant theologian, John Walton, and uh, he was talking about <clears throat> somebody who was coming to faith, and the process involved the person saying, I think there's more. <laughs> and that struck me when he said that, because that's exactly the process I went through. I said, this is, there's got to be more here. There's something we're not seeing. There's something yeah. else. And, and that that's the first that door is the first one to open when you're when you're trying to uh, okay, so see I, what else there is uh got to wrap up here uh, okay a few minutes left what i want to kind of end it with here is um the million dollar question um I mean, you talked a little bit about your testimony um but for a skeptic or an atheist or you know somebody who's genuinely uh serious about uh inquiring maybe they're on a similar path that you are have been um, a question that always comes up when you try to you know, combine the sciences with scripture, you try to have an explanatory scope of, of why God is the best explanation. Um, given the multitude, the multiplicity of religious belief that, that is out there, uh, how do we go from the hard sciences, biological chemistry, biology, cosmology, astronomy, how do we go from there to Jesus? Uh, I don't think that's a great question, uh, Don. I, I uh, sorry, uh, Dan. I, I I I think that that's actually could be the subject of my next book, also, <laughs> uh, which I'm thinking of calling "Why Jesus," because yeah. all, all of the all of the science and the and the questions that came up from there don't point to Jesus. They point to a God. They point to a Creator, and that could be. Uh, Islam, it could be Judaism, it could be even maybe maybe perhaps some of the polytheistic religions, I don't know. Mm. And the interesting answer is that I went through a number of those things, and I tried them out. And I don't, th that part of the journey requires, it's not, sci it's not science that leads you there, it's the theology and the specific features of Christianity, which I found incredibly compelling. Uh, even before I had direct experiences, I, as I said, I read the Gospels. I found them to be, you know, very convincing in terms of not, you know, in terms of being true. Not, in other words, that the idea that these were made up, 
is to me is nonsense. I mean, I don't, mm. I can't imagine a writer who could write that out of their imagination. It's, well, that's the, that's the interesting thing. You know, you see that uh, a lot of skeptics and atheists have a, an unnatural uh, bias towards Bronze Age people. Um, <laughs> and a particular uh, hatred for goat herders. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I tongue in cheek sometimes if a, if a skeptic gets a little saucy with me, I'll just say, well, okay, so it's a bronze. Let me agree with you that maybe it's a bronze age myth written by, you know, uneducated goat herders or fishermen or whatever. I'm like, well, well when the skeptic community comes up with a better mythology, I'll, uh, I'll consider it because even yeah. in their best explanations for what is true, nobody, has come up with, I mean, if we, if we just want to admit for arguments, say Christianity is a myth, nobody has come up with a better myth. And mm -hmm. this was C.S. Lewis's argument in, uh, uh, I think it is uh, The Silver Chair, where mm -hmm. they're confronted with the, the evil antagonist in the, in the story, the witch. And, and uh, I think it was uh, the scarecrow, I think it was Puddleglum, who says to the witch, even if your story is true, I'm still going to believe my mythology because it seems like children's mythology can outdo your, you know, your evil view of the world. And I think that's, that's an argument that is rarely brought up that how can you, if the gospels are fabricated, how do you explain the genius of these writers who made this stuff up and how come it's still so lasting and how come it's still so historically attested and, and, and has so much explanatory scope. If these are just myths, um, why haven't they gone away and, and, and why not come up with a better one? You know, why? right. I, I, I agree. And I think also that one has to account for the rapid, rapid growth of the church throughout the right. world, which, you know, a, a group of 30 or 40 illiterate fishermen are not going to be able to do. No, <laughs> no, there's for every reason. There's a, there's a story in Acts about the, the Gamaliel who, who right. advises the council that he said, look, if these men are just off their rocker, you know, nuttier than, uh, than pecans in a squirrel's pantry, then, then just, uh, just let them go because <laughs> right. that's, they'll the, the, fall away. They'll fall away just like everything else we've seen guys. That's but right. if you leave them alone, then you're, don't be found fighting against God. Uh, because you know, they, they, they know in the first century that all these teachers that rise up with little students and they run around and they start fires and, and pretty soon they're put out, you know? And, yeah. uh, I think for me, as you say, that part of the journey requires a, a step of faith. But if you, you really look at the, the historicity of the gospels, I, I, I always go back to Jesus, his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Right. Um, so, so that that actually, uh, just to wrap up this, yeah. this part, um, to answer your question, it was what really drew me to Christianity was was Jesus Christ. In other words, the idea that God, who is incredibly remote, God the Father, the Creator, is remote, is unknowable, is you know, very difficult to really make contact with, at least in our world, um, that he chose to come to earth in the form of a, of a man, and, and, and not a king, but a, a carpenter, mm. uh, and, and walk around and tell us things and cure us and heal us and have compassion on us. I found that incredibly compelling and moving. And, yeah. uh, and of course, the resurrection is an incredible story of hope, good news. How else can you put it? Uh, good news that that we are loved by God, and that and that He came to Earth, sacrificed Himself to redeem us from sin. Yeah, these are incredibly powerful things that don't occur in any other religion that I know of. Yeah, you speak wonderfully and, of it in terms of uh, 
it being like a, you describe a, a Christmas present that you're right. a, little, a, a little nervous to open because you're like, is it going to be a sweater? I don't want another sweater. I don't, <laughs> I'm afraid of this. I'm going to sniff around the package. I'm going to look into it. Do I'm going to be disappointed. I'm afraid to take this. How could I do this? But, but I think in truth that that bridge is the acceptance of the gift that is there waiting uh, to be apprehended. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sai. It's been a delightful conversation yes, with you. I uh, very much enjoyed a, it. A very you. warm prose that is easy to read. Now, is this an audio book yet, or will it be an audio book? I don't know. Uh, I think that will usually, if I'm not mistaken, audio books take a little time. I don't, uh, how about your book? Is that is that going to be an audio book? Or it has to reach that? a certain sales threshold. That's, that's what I thought. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know what that magic number is, but it's not really the, the job of the, our publisher. The author. They have that's to right. be uh, approached by an audio publishing company. That exactly. Takes Who, yeah. Who's the size to do it. Right. So, so let me so. just say, uh, thank you so much for talking about the book. I just want to add that the book will be released uh, and shipped, or actually it will be, it will arrive if it's uh, on November 19th. Uh, but it is available for pre-order. And if you go to uh, my webpage, The Works of His Hands, uh, you'll see a link to the Amazon page, or you can look directly uh, on Amazon. And the pre-order is, is a little bit cheaper, as usual. Uh, and you will receive it on the 19th if it's pre-ordered now. Mm. Uh, and uh, um, thank you for listening. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, um, is there, you're very active on Twitter. You want to give them your handle? Yes, I can be found easily on Twitter. It's just my name, Sigart, at Sigart, S-Y-G-A-R-T-E. And, and I can, I, I can I attest. I am active. I tweet every day. Yeah, and I can attest your tweets are are watched like a movie. I mean, you get a lot, <laughs> no matter what you say, you get a lot of encouraging tweets from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I do. You, you I get a lot of hatred. That. I a get a lot of, of hatred too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. So, so your, your Twitter, if, even if you just want to stop by size Twitter handle and just watch, <laughs> you don't have to jump in, but Sai is, uh, Sai is entertainment. Yeah. Pure, <laughs> pure entertainment. But you know, you can, you can, there's some evidence about exactly the stuff, the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Um, and it's, it's just really important to, and you know, one of the things that you do is we just maintain integrity and, and perseverance, uh, because of the joy and the hope and the grace and the mercy that Jesus gives us. It's not always a bed of roses. Um, Amen. but, uh, it reminds me, uh, your book in, in one sense reminds me of uh, what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why has all authority been given to him? Because he created that's right. He is the one who, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth and, and everything upon them. And so the authority extends all the way down into our DNA and Absolutely. all the way out to the distant star. Uh, his authority is not just uh, that of a, of a domineering king with, with boring rules. Um, you know, when the scripture talks about taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, I used to think that was a terrible verse because it just seems so legalistic. But it, no, it's, it's, it's actually an exhortation to, to see everything, creation, stars, blue whales, butterflies, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, in light of who Jesus is. And I think, uh, I think one of the things I really appreciate your book, about your book, Sai, is that you are not watering down your theology. You are not uh, hiding Jesus under a bushel. You are, you are Jesus. You know, that, that you are promoting Christ, and it's very clear. 
uh, where your hope is and what your ultimate hope is. And, and you're not just, it's, this isn't just a scientific theism book. This is a very distinctly, I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, maker of heaven and earth. You know, it's, it's a very clear testimony and I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. your, your comments. Thank so uh, we uh, please check out Sai's book, check out his website, visit Amazon. Is it, can you get it anywhere where fine books are sold? Uh, will be on the 19th, sure. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, follow Sai on Twitter. And uh, you are, you don't have a YouTube yet, do you? Or you? No, I don't. I'm thinking about it, but uh, it's going to have to wait a little bit till, till um. Yeah, I'm, you know. I'm just now venturing into that myself. And I'm um, standing in, in, in uh, knee deep and I'm wondering, is this, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know about, <laughs> I don't know about YouTube yet, but uh, we have both been on uh, S.J. Thomason's channel a few times. Oh, yeah. Which is That's a great right. channel. She gets a that lot of flack on Twitter, too. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> uh, but I hope, Sai, this will be the first of, of many more conversations uh, on Twitter and was... um, more recordings and maybe, okay. um, um, you know, just, just really wonderful to meet you, really wonderful to talk to you. And I'm glad I was able to give you the platform for this. And uh, hope and pray that uh, this touches you, the listener. And uh, we thank Cy Gart for taking the time to visit us here on Good Heavens. Good Heavens.